I'm Natalie Mackey, the CEO of Winky Lux. What I love about beauty is its ability to create joy for customers. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. On today's episode of Beauty is Your Business, we are buzzing about finding your audience and then leaning into them. I'm your co-host for today's show, Denise Dente. I am here with my co-host, business partner, friend and colleague, Jessica Quick. Hi, Jessica. Hey, Denise. Getting excited for the opportunity to talk with Natalie and this amazing brand that she's built called Winky Lux. I know. We got to see this brand Gosh, it feels like maybe early on in its inception. And I think the thing that we definitely talked about was how she was leaning into a completely different audience at that time. Really, when the brand started, it was a time when minimalism was kind of all the rage, kind of monochromatic packaging, different colors were just not seen in the marketplace. And then she burst onto the scene. So Natalie, welcome to the show. And we're thrilled to have you and talking about kind of the audience that you went after a little bit about Winky Lux and where it's going. So welcome to the show. Thanks, Janice. It's great to be here. Well, we want to kick off with a little bit about the inception of the brand. And like I indicated when I started, when you launched the brand in 2015, it was a very different moment in time. We saw brands like Glossier and some of these other brands really more minimalistic. And then you burst onto the scene with colors and shapes and textures. And it was just a very different moment. So I'd love to hear a little more about the inception of the brand and how you decided to make that pivot and do something different. Sure. Well, Winky Lux was originally a side hustle project. And because of that, it was really fearless. And let me start by saying my aesthetic is very maximalist. My house is very extra. You can see the wallpaper in the background. I like to think it's elegant, but it's also really patterned. And I'm from the South. I think that's just part of my aesthetic heritage. So these were mostly things when we started ideating this brand, it was mostly things that I liked that made me happy. And because the brand was about sparking joy and creating that hit of dopamine for the customer, that's how it naturally came to be were all of these things that were creating, creating those little pops of happy for me. We started, though, in a really different way. We started the company as a marketplace, and this was 2015 when marketplaces were very hot and they were kind of all the rage, and it was like the thing to do, and if you wanted to raise money, you needed to be in a marketplace and have an inventory light model, and so we began to create this quiz. You'd answer a bunch of different questions, and we would tell you what makeup products to buy. That said... As we were building this thing out, we ended up interviewing a ton of women and determining that this quiz actually didn't solve any of their problems. Even though it was a little ahead of its time, it was like a really smart piece of software and it, it really did produce like cool product ideas. That said, what we learned was that for most customers, buying beauty products was really a joy. The discovery was really a joy. So it wasn't solving things in the way that perhaps 
a quiz on a fashion site about how to find your right size. I mean, that's like a perfect place to have a quiz, right? Everyone is really such a bummer when you order a cool outfit and it doesn't fit or it's just wrong. So that makes sense. But with beauty, there's so much fun in the discovery. I'll pedal back a little bit so I don't get you know all over the place because this isn't exactly a linear story. It's kind of all over the place as a story. But we knew that in a marketplace business model, most of your revenue comes from affiliate marketing, which y'all will know about. But for anyone who isn't a marketing genius, affiliate marketing means you are promoting a product and you click through, you don't own the product you don't fulfill the product, you just get a commission when someone clicks through your website or app, and that's how you make money. That said, in order to make a lot of money or in order to make it really profitable, you really should have your own brand that you can pepper in. And so this was sort of an afterthought. We thought, okay, we'll need a brand to increase our overall margin. So Natalie, you know a lot about manufacturing from your old job. So how do we make this brand. And I think because it was so much of a side thing that we were just going to push through the site, it was really fearless. We didn't, you know, go to Red Antler, no offense to Red Antler, but we like we didn't go to where everybody was going at that moment. It's a great agency, but it was a very specific look and feel in 2015. And that permeated for at least five years. It was minimalism and serifs and lots of negative space. And that was beautiful, but it didn't quite make me happy. What really made me happy were really French-inspired, ornate patterns with crazy detail and filigree and golds hot stamping. And these really like a return to this like preciousness around packaging and both from a primary packaging standpoint and also a also a secondary packaging standpoint. That's been part of the DNA of the brand has been how do we put a lot of thoughtfulness and detail into all of this presentation? Even internally, our presentations are quite pretty. <laughs> so I'm just working on a deck for an offsite right now before I got on this call. And it's like very pretty, this deck. So but that's very much our company's part of our core value. Okay, so if I understand this, so you actually started a marketplace and the goal here was to help consumers find a product that met their needs. So you set up this quiz and by doing that, by default and getting all of their answers back, you started to accumulate a lot of really good, rich data for what people were looking for. And then that's actually what you were able to take and look into and say, okay, if we really want to make money, we need a brand. And hey, we happen to have all this good data of what people, what they're looking for, solutions they may need. And you were able to take that and translate that into what we all now know as Winky Lux from a product standpoint. And then of course, added your spin of joy and what brings joy to make it this kind of fun, dynamic brand that we know today. Is that correct? It is. The one thing I would say, though, is that we were starting the brand even before we had the data. So we knew that in order for the business model to work, we might want to have our own brand. And so it was almost this thing that I was doing kind of at night when we weren't working on the marketplace and creating these mood boards and talking to manufacturing friends 
And at the time I had gone to a Damien Hirst exhibit where they had all these gold and silver pills. And it was very inspiring. It was like all about like this like visual addiction. It was really kind of an interesting, very, very like esoteric. But the point was that my inspiration was really coming from these things that I really enjoyed. Simultaneously, we were also starting to get tons of this data from the customer. One of the things that we got that I still think about was we did most of the surveys remotely. We interviewed about 200 women. And then we did a few in-person surveys. And the way we were recruiting, I had a cousin who was in a sorority. We were recruiting through that. So we actually had a lot of young women in our survey group. And one of the things that to this day, it really stuck with me. And I have to credit my business partner too, who is a, a guy for also kind of being outside of the four walls of the beauty industry at the time and kind of noticing a few of these things. One of the things we noticed was we would ask the interviewees to jump out their makeup bag and this is a normal thing to do. Why did you buy this? Tell us about this product. How do you feel about this product? Something that kept coming up with these words that were really interesting. So these were a lot of Gen Z and young millennial customers. At the time, they were millennial customers because this was seven years ago, eight years ago. But they were young and they had a lot of drugstore makeup because that's what they could afford. And then they had one or two pieces of luxury makeup, usually very beautiful, very beautiful packaging. And they would say things like, they would show me a Maybelline foundation and say, that's actually really good. You know, even though it's drugstore, it's actually really good. Oh, I just bought this mascara because I ran out of my good stuff. Well, I knew enough about manufacturing to be pretty dangerous in the sense that I knew like that particular foundation was actually like an incredible foundation and was as good as many luxury foundations. So it was interesting that they had, these were like shame trigger words around these products that they were purchasing. And this is the products that they could afford. And a lot of them were actually really great products. So it was interesting to me that no one had really in this more accessible price point had acknowledge the need for a more elegant and beautiful experience. There's so much pressure in the mass beauty space to put 100% of every piece of marketing you've ever had on your secondary package. And so things end up looking, especially over time, they end up looking really convoluted and messy, kind of janky, like not nice. And the customer just doesn't feel very nice when they buy it and they don't feel very nice when they open their makeup bag. And it's just such a small thing, but it actually, I think, was such a big white space. It was such an opportunity to create something more special for her because we are in that business. We're in the business of creating these special moments for our customer. And how can it be special if it's like a lime green, like in black mascara tube? I'm not calling out one of the most famous mascaras, but but it's a great mascara, right? But the packaging is gross. So where's that specialness that she deserves? Also, you start to learn more about packaging and efficiencies, and there are some small costs associated with upgrading the packaging, but overall, as a percentage of the margin, it just didn't make sense to try to nickel and dime it to the point where she was going to have a bad experience. Like at the end of the day, you had to cut through this noise and be really special and beautiful, and you could still do that with like a healthy cost of good. It still baffles my mind that people haven't moved into that direction. Yeah, you bring up something about the visual aesthetic of the product. You know, people eat with their eyes first. They look at product with their eyes first. 
we had Casey Georgeson on the show and she talked about being in the wine aisle and that people select even wine by the way that the label looks. So I think that you definitely are onto something about the visual impact that the product has. I am curious about some of the pros and cons about doing something as untraditional as you did coming in and really shaking things up. What were some of the lessons learned about changing the way the packaging looked and felt on the shelf and or going to vendors and saying, I don't want to do this over here. I want to do something much more ornate and Baroque over here. And what kind of feedback did you get? Well, so many pros and cons, so many cons, (laughs) so many lessons learned. From a vendor standpoint, they were all pretty excited. First of all, we met with a hundred vendors probably when we first started this process. We needed to find people who were at the intersection of high quality and also willing to take a bet on our brand. So one of the things that I counsel new founders on or people starting companies is not to just go to one manufacturer to like go and really go and pick through everything to really understand the ecosystem. So from the vendor standpoint, I feel like they were excited to do something different but they're kind of always excited. They're going to get paid no matter what, if you sell the product or not. They might be taking a little risk, but let's be honest, it's not that big. From a retailer perspective, we were hella confusing. We were just so confusing to people. So we weren't confusing to the customer. The customer loved it and was super excited about it and loved the whimsy and the products. And But retailers were very confused. Are we mass? Are we luxury? Are we mastige? What is mastige? One retailer had one thought process on it. Another retailer had another one. It's very rare that a product is sold in Nordstrom and in Target. Like It's an unusual place that we sit. It's rare that a brand has a customer base that is so diverse from an age perspective. We, Our brand avatar is clearly quite young, but our actual customer is wildly diverse and it's really crazy. Our core customer is millennial, but we have as many Gen Xers as we do Gen Zers buying the product. And we have boomers too, and like a, a pretty big chunk of boomers. And our explanation for why that is, is that the value proposition of the brand is joy and joy is a very ageless value proposition. <laughs> People really want joy no matter what age they are. And that was also confusing to retailers when we started talking about who is our customer base. So one of the more tactical things I would say is last year we started trickling in a packaging refresh and our new packaging is stunning. It's so sick. It's just beautiful. And it really is part of its core to the brand, but we upgraded some of the legibility. This was one of the, we've been form over function frequently in our company's history where we've just been obsessed with the beauty of the packaging and having to make the pattern go all the way around and things like that. So it was a big challenge. We actually hired a firm to help us do it, to take the packaging into a place where it's a little bit more legible, a little bit easier to understand on shelf, but also keep core to that really Baroque and or neat aesthetic. I'm really glad that you brought that up. This is something that Denise and I talk about a lot when it comes to you've started your brand, you've invested a lot in getting it to market because obviously formula, packaging, go-to-market strategies, you've put a lot of time and effort. It's your baby. 
And then you're in the market and you realize that updates need to be made. And we come across this a lot with clients and different brands in which they see it because the market's telling them there's something about their packaging that needs to be tweaked or something about their formula that needs to be tweaked. But it's really hard because you feel like I've only been here for three years or I've only even been here for a year. So I love that you're sharing that even eight years into this, that you guys have already done a brand refresh because of what you learned and because of what the industry needs and your customer needs that you were willing to take that on. So thank you for sharing it. I think that's what most brands go through and really good leaders will recognize that early and do it versus waiting and waiting and watching the brand start to then slow down and lose momentum. So I think it's a really good lesson learned. Thank you. This is so hard to justify it financially. You have to really believe that the customer experience is paramount to, and it, you know, it takes a long time. It takes years because you have to do the work and then it trickles in over time. That is also hard, right? So it's like, because you feel like you just got it out to market and you just started getting momentum and then you're already now looking at something different. And it feels like you said, the time that it will take to get there again, it does feel like you're already on your own heels. But it is important. And we do find that even when you come to the market, it's honestly, with the best of intentions, you're not going to get it 100% right. You're not even probably going to get it 80% right. So knowing that it's just get it out there, see what it has to do, and then be ready to pivot and slightly adjust as needed. It's one of those key things that we find successful brands do to keep their momentum going. I wanted to ask you about, I thought it was really interesting because it's been a long held belief in the beauty industry about not being able to swim upstream. So you have to start at those better, higher end spaces and then work your way down. But like you said, you guys actually wanted to target and Nordstrom's and we're seeing that now more so in 2023, brands are able to do both, but this wasn't the case in 2016, 2017, 2018. So I'd love to understand a little bit about those first initial appointments or how you thought about how can we really get into a spot, a retailer like a Nordstrom's in which they have a certain type of customer and a retailer like Target. How did you have those conversations in order to manage those objections? I love looking back at some of this stuff and sometimes pretending it was all so strategic. Uh, A lot of it was very (laughs) reactive to me. A lot of it was really reactive to what was going on. We were really, truly a digital first brand and everything we did was really about growth hacking and part of the beauty of the product. It was strategic because we knew the customer wanted it, but we would oftentimes when we did briefs for designing a new product, we would say, this has to photograph, it has to be visual candy because that's the way we're going to connect with our customer. It has to be pretty enough that the customer really wants to touch it and feel it. And she can almost touch it and feel it when she sees it. So we started truly digital first and our first wholesale relationship, if you can believe it, the first product we ever sold to a store was to Colette in Paris, which was a store that used to exist in Paris and now it's gone, but it was this iconic like fashion store where they sold like crazy one-off Dior, like couture stuff. And the buyer happened to really love the aesthetic of the brand, thought it was really weird and wild and brought it into the store. We had some other kind of really prestige, like fashion-y customers early on, which was just really crazy. I think because it just looked really different and it kind of looked like artwork. And then we got approached by Target. At the time, we were actually 
testing in Sephora. We'd begun to test in Sephora. It was an interesting thing. Like color cosmetics were doing okay in Sephora at the time, but they were going into that skincare cycle. And at the same time, we just kept going over and over, like this product really doesn't fit the Sephora aesthetic. And we would go and visit it in store. And we had very small tests. I mean, really, really little. And it didn't really resonate to us when we were looking at it. It was really low on the shelf and it was really small and the products just didn't make sense all alone by themselves. They were sort of goofy looking and we were just at the same time asking our customers over and over and over again, where do you shop? Where do you shop? Where do you shop? Where do you shop? And we just kept getting over and over and over again. We shop at Target. We shop at Target. We shop at Target. Target had been pursuing us and we kind of said like, we know now that we don't really want, and here's the funny thing, like core values matter so much, like the alignment between the retailer and the brand matters so much. Sephora is a beautiful store. It's a great company. They really stand for, this is not a official approved response from Sephora, but this is my perception, is that they stand for artistry, exclusivity, aspiration. Like those are the three main core tenets when I walk into Sephora that I feel. I feel that it is aspirational. It's about artist, it's about the artistry of makeup, and it is it's very exclusive. We stand for accessibility, design, and joy. And so, like, what is the next retailer that really stands for accessibility, design, and joy? And there really is no retailer that is more that there's more overlap than Target. And so we kind of like had this wild idea where we said, okay, we, we know we're really good at this like visual experience. Can we create a potential display stand and y'all can either approve it or deny it, but this is what we want to do if we go into Target. Because we also know like the moment you announce that you're going to go into Target, you are dead to Sephora. So it is a big bet. You know, we've been deciding like, do we want to invest in this partnership and grow it? Or do we want to do something different? Because so far it feels like a slight misalignment. So Target, I don't know how we got this approved, but they said yes. And we launched in 1,800 Target, so full chain with two feet, which is very unheard of for a new newer brand. And it was a really successful and magical launch. We ended up winning Vendor of the Year. It's been a really good marriage of two brands that really stand for accessibility, design, and joy. And then Ulta really was kind of on the heels of that. They'd seen what we could do there. And so we brought that same like visual sensibility to Ulta. That's been great. And we get better each time. You know, we get a little bit better every time we do it. But generally I find with retailers, the focus has to be on the customer experience because retailers really care about what sells. So <laughs> if the customer experience is awesome, I mean, it doesn't matter how friendly you are with a retailer. It doesn't matter like how innovative or cool the product is. It definitely has to be all of those things. And you definitely have to be like, decent to work with. But at the end of the day, it's the customer who's going to vote for you. So for us, it's been about making sure that that is very special and that we treat her as well in retail as we do in direct. 
It is funny when you think about Target, we have a lot of international people that we work with. And whenever they come to the US, we talk to them about, you know, okay, where do you want to go to? What are some of the shopping things that you want to do? And you would naturally think being in Los Angeles or Southern California, they would want to go up to Beverly Hills and some of those things, which they do want to do. Don't get me wrong. But one of the first places they all want to go is Target. They know about its accessibility. They know about the fact that you can buy so many things. And they literally leave with shopping carts, shopping carts of items. So I really do think you're onto something there for sure. And congratulations on that win. Being vendor of the year in a place like Target when there's so many vendors is something spectacular. Thank you. We appreciate it. I do have questions around when and how you decide to open a retailer like that. When you talk about 1,800 doors, I'm sure it goes through everyone's mind, the risk, the payoff, the amount of inventory that's required. How do you not only sell in, but sell through? So what are some words of advice that you have about heading down that road of these Mastige retailers? So I have so many thoughts here. I could probably talk about this for 10 hours. There isn't a right way to do it. Different brands do it different ways, and it's what works for the brand at the time. For us, we do best when we are a full expression of the brand. We don't make as much sense as a single SKU. We really excel in like that visual experience and that sort of interactive experience at retail. So that can't be achieved with a very small offering. For some brands, why would you over-assort your SKUs or why would you, if you're like an amazing one key hero product and everything else is a franchise off of that, you may not need so much space. I do think it's easy to get lost though when you do a small group. The other thing I talk to a lot of new brands now about Target and Ulta and, and we're still growing in Ulta. We have a lot of room to grow there, but Generally, it is not the same business as e-com. It's just such a different business. And so the idea that you can seamlessly transition the same team from e-com to retail is a fantasy that has not come true yet. So you have to have a really strong operational team that is ready to follow your retail partner very closely, to understand the numbers really closely, someone with experience. You can't out-innovate experience there. You need experienced people in those retailers. So it's a matter, and it is big boy rules. Like you were, especially with a retailer like Target or let's say Walmart, we're not in Walmart, but I'm told it is quite similar in that you're awarded this space and your merchant's going to help guide you through certain trends or certain strategies, but they're not going to tell you exactly what you should or should not sell. And it's really on you. If you don't sell, you're going to get a markdown, which is outrageously expensive. So you live and die by your own business and your journey the day you get that big fat PO and you get so excited, like that's the journey just to beginning. <laughs> so it's just the very tip of a very large iceberg. So it's really important to think through like what's right for the brand. The one thing I will say is we tend to go into retailers at this point in our evolution. We just launched in Shoppers Drug Mart in uh, Canada. 
we are in a thousand stores, which is almost every store with two or four feet, which is a lot of launch for shoppers, particularly who is known for much more steady state launch program. But we decided this was the right year because they had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to really, they were exiting some brands and they had the opportunity to really give us real space. And it is hard to manage a retailer, whether or not you have 300 doors or you have a thousand doors. It's just incremental past that. So for us, it, it makes financial sense to have a bigger presence. It's also really difficult to support huge retail partners if you're in limited doors. It's hard to justify hiring the teams who then go into the stores to support them. I would love to understand, you know, we talked a lot about the aesthetic of the brand and the visual presence and how a customer interacts with it. But obviously you're doing really well at retail because of that. Talk to us a little bit about the online space. How are you seeing your customers? Are they the same customers engaging in both places or are you seeing a different customer on a marketplace like Amazon and are they expecting something slightly different from your brand? Oh, I wish we had more data from Amazon. I really, really wish we got more deep insights because I think of the same thing. I constantly wonder who exactly this person is. It's probably me. <laughs> I feel like I buy on Amazon once a day. So I have a little kid though. So that's like, it's the law. You have to have a Prime membership when you have a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just give it to you. On your checkout. Here's your birth certificate <laughs> and your Prime membership. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Just be on that app all day. So there's so much opportunity in digital that we are, that's something where I think the brand has a lot more runway. We have really focused, I mean, we tell the team we can do anything. This is a really smart team. We can do anything we want. We can do anything that we set our minds to, but we can't do everything. And I think for the past three years, we have been really focused on supporting and growing our retail partnerships. And we've really left a lot of our, growth in e-commerce to, we've really left it to mostly organic growth. That said, like, I think we're getting closer to a time where it's time to start turning that back on. There's a lot of opportunity that we're seeing. There's just new ways that the customer is interacting. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that now that we do have this more broad-based distribution we still have really low brand awareness. So people don't really know the brand exists. We have 15% brand awareness. So we have a lot of people that have never even heard of Winky Likes before. I hope a bunch of people on this podcast are like, what is this brand? And they Google it and they buy it. But we generally couldn't justify things like TV ads because we can't get enough return on that to our website to make sense. But now that we're available in Target and Ulta and Amazon and in Canada and Shoppers, now we can. Now we will see like a lift across all of those channels. And all of a sudden it becomes an actually like a ROAS positive initiative. And that is super exciting. That's like a new unlock, I would say, for the brand. The next five years should be really fascinating as we can afford to invest in a little bit more of that top of funnel marketing because now we can see enough of the conversion to make sense. I mean, we're still, we still have to be super scrappy. We're like scrappy as can be, to be honest. I think that's the reality of the business today is in order to be profitable, you have to be efficient and you have to be scrappy. Even as being Target's vendor of the year, you're still mentioning words like you're a startup, being scrappy, being efficient, trying to create awareness 
So I think that those are things that are really good nuggets to continue to talk about as you scale, you still have to go back to a lot of the fundamentals. So thank you very much for sharing that. Our audience is most likely going to want to reach out to you, learn more about the brand, which is great to help you uh, go from that 15% up and higher. So we're here to help with that. If they do want to reach out to you, learn more about the brand, where can you recommend they go? Definitely Instagram. I feel like that's where we live as a brand and TikTok too, but mostly Instagram, I would say. So Winky Lux on Instagram, my personal handle is NatMac1. I try to answer any DM that I get. So hit me up. I know everyone's supposed to say LinkedIn, but my gosh, I never check LinkedIn. I'm the worst with it. I can't have this many different channels open. You know, it's like 40 ways to get in touch with somebody these days. It's too much. No, it is too much. And then you forget what channel you talk to them on and then you're trying to go back through it. I mean, it is too much. So finding one or two that you're good with and staying to that is, again, you're really smart. Just pick the good things you can do well. Don't try to do all of them. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being on the show. We appreciate having you. We hope to have you back again. And if you want to keep buzzing with us, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>